so we've been in our January series. Our January series is the series that we cover our foundational principles of the church. We cover our core values. But more than that, I want to make sure that every January, you and I get our lives set up all over again on a strong foundation. And there are two passages in Scripture that I never really connected before, but they share the same metaphor, and we've been talking about them for the past couple of weeks. And the first one shows up in Matthew chapter 7. I'm going to put it up on the screen over here by me. It says, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. That's uh, such an incredible metaphor there, that Jesus would use the metaphor of a rock being the firm foundation that even when storms come, it's not going to shake you. But what's fascinating is he uses that same metaphor later on in Matthew chapter 16 when he's talking about something completely different. And in that passage it says, and I tell you, he's talking to Peter, Simon Peter, he says, I tell you, you're Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. And last week we looked a little bit about what this rock meant. In that context, back in that passage, Jesus was actually talking to Peter about a statement that Peter had just made about the identity of Jesus being the Christ, the Son of the living God, the Messiah. And Jesus says, on that rock, I'm going to build my church and the gates of Hades will not stand against it. And the fascinating thing about both of these passages is that both of these passages indicate that whether you're an individual or a group of people, the people that Jesus would call his church, either you're, if you're an individual or a group of people, you're going to face storms. You're going to face hardship. You may even face the gates of Hades, whatever he means by that. We're actually going to be talking about that next week. But you might even face the gates of Hades. And Jesus' response to that would be, don't worry, there's a rock underneath all of this. And if we build our lives on the rock, then we have some stability So by way of review, let me just remind you of the two things we've talked about so far, the two basic lessons that we've learned so far. The first lesson is this, I will follow Jesus with others who follow Jesus, and Jesus builds his church. I'm going to follow Jesus with other people who are following Jesus, and I'm going to let Jesus build his church. That's the first principle we saw two weeks ago. And then last week, we learned this principle, I'm going to build my life on a Jesus-centered understanding of God's Word. Now, we have heard time and time again, if you've been in church before in your life, you, you know that people in church say you need to base your life on the Bible. At least most of the churches that I'm familiar with, they would say the Bible is our authority. Base your life on the Bible. The problem is that we all have our own different ideas and understandings of what the Bible has to say. But there is a central interpretive figure for the entire Bible, and it's Jesus himself. And so last week I encouraged you to focus your life, build your life on a Jesus-centered understanding of God's Word. How does God's Word get filtered through Jesus, and what does the life of Jesus have to teach us about God's Word? But there was a passage we looked at last week that I want to bring back to the surface this week. And it goes in line with all these other things that we've said. It goes in line with this idea of practicing and whether you are a kind of person who enjoys practicing. 
It's this basic idea that says, unless you actually do something, it's not going to benefit you in any way. See, today what I want to talk to you about is the transformation that God wants to do in our lives as we do these other things. If I'm following Jesus, Jesus is a different person than I am, and so the closer I follow him, the differenter I get, the more changed I become. And as I am beginning to let God's word shape me, the the more I become like someone who looks like God's word. And so it boils down to us needing to actually do, not just read or understand. So today we're going to talk about transformation. And we're going to begin with this passage in Hebrews, a passage we looked at last week that I think is important for us to look at again. It says this, But solid food is for the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. Now, the amazing thing about this passage is that it tells us you have the ability to understand the difference between good and evil. And I have the ability to understand the difference between good and evil. It reminds me that I am the kind of person who should be able to know what's right and what's wrong. There's just one problem. In order to understand correctly what is right and what is wrong, I have to previously been living out a life of doing. Now, this is fascinating to me. This is fascinating that I need to be doing what I know in order for me to learn the next bit that I need to know. Until I'm doing, I won't have understanding, but doing leads to understanding. And that's a fascinating idea. And it's true. I mean, you and I have experienced it in our lives so many times. Um, whether, it's, whether it's playing a sport where you don't really understand the way the game should be played until you have played it a lot. I mean, you might understand some of the principles, but you don't really fully get it. A number of years ago, I uh, had this idea. I wanted to learn what it would take to make a video game. That was one of my ideas. My second idea was that I wanted to teach my children how to program computers. More accurately, I wanted my children to have a programming class at their school, and their school didn't offer one. And so what I did is I went to the school and I said, I would like to teach you a programming class here at the school if you'd be willing to let me do that. Well, the school happened to do this thing in January where they would have a week-long uh, class session where you would only take two classes all week long, one in the morning and one in the afternoon. And those two classes were completely elective. And they said, sure, we'll give you one of these classes that you can do. Now, I didn't know how to make video games, nor had I ever taught programming before in my life. But I thought, I want my kids to learn something, and I want to learn how to make a video game. So what I did is I spent the fall, and I programmed like three or four different video games trying to learn what it was all about, because I know that doing is the pathway to understanding. And after I had done all that, then I started teaching the class and neither of my kids ever took it. So that's, anyway, um, I, I was always a little bit disappointed by that. But nonetheless, I now have had so much experience doing the things with regard to programming and whatnot that I can help other churches and I can help other, and I can even do a side hustle if I need to. And in our church app, I don't know if you know this, 
But if you tap on the menu thing at the top, you know, and then you scroll down to the bottom, you know, where it says about, no one ever reads about. But if you tap on the about, there's a little window that pops up and it says, it says dash and it says particles. And if you tap on particles, the whole screen will go black. But now you have a fidget box for your children to play with. That if you... <laughs> I just love that. I put that in our church app because, and I just sit here and I can just watch the little balls bounce up and down all the time. But the point is not that you now can, you know, play games in church, but the point is that if you do something, then you can begin to understand it. The Bible is filled with these kinds of ideas. In fact, I'll read you a couple more. In James and also in the book of Psalms, we read these. In James, it says this, Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself, goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they've heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. This tells us that, listen, you can read God's word, you can understand God's word, but until you're doing God's word, the blessing is going to be far from you. And and then you go back into the Old Testament in the book of Psalms and you see exactly the same concept. It says this, Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. Okay, context. This person is focusing their life on God's word. But look what the promise it says. It says that person is like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. This is one of those passages that I read all the time when I'm trying to give someone a sense of confidence that, listen, if you want your life to move forward in a positive direction, this is the foundation. Whatever he does prospers. Whatever they do prospers. It's an amazing promise. The shorthand promise from both the book of James and the book of Psalms and many other passages in the Bible is this. If I'm doing God's word, it leads to blessings. Doing God's word leads to understanding. Doing God's word also leads to blessings. Now, there's, there's a problem with this concept, and, and the problem is with us. You see, we are the kind of people who tend to think about blessings selfishly. We tend to think of the blessings that feel like blessings to me, blessings of comfort, blessings of ease, blessings of good health, things like that. And what's fascinating is that the Bible never promises comfort, ease, material wealth. It uses words like prosperity and blessing, but we're the ones who interpret those words into being material. We're the ones who interpret those words into being health-focused. God is not at all interested in just trying to give you 70 or so years on this earth. He is interested in having an eternity with you. He loves you so much, He's not going to settle for just a few years. He wants 
eternity for you. And once you get into the perspective of eternity, then you can get into the place where the Apostle Paul would say things like, these light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. You can get to that place where you realize the true blessing is something far beyond comfort or ease or wealth. Doing leads to blessing. It's just the problem is that we get some kind of wrong idea about these blessings. How do I know our, our idea of the blessings is wrong? Well, it's because if you find the person in the Bible who obeys God the closest, you will also find Jesus hanging on a cross. Remember, he's the one who the night before he goes to the cross says, Father, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus is the one who obeys the Word of God more than anyone else in human history. And no one could say he lived a life of ease and comfort, of wealth, of earthly prosperity. But blessing is the promise. Blessing is the promise. And that's why Jesus himself, when he gives his promise regarding the doing of God's word, he says the verse we've already looked at. I'll read it again from Matthew 7. It says, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house. Yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. You see, Jesus is making you a promise, not just a promise that you'll be comfortable. The storms are still going to come. Not a promise that it's going to be easy. You had to build your house on a rock. That's difficult. It requires drilling down, sometimes dynamite, sometimes building some anchors. It's a difficult process to build a house on top of a rock. That takes effort. And Jesus is not saying it's going to be easy. He's not saying it's going to be comfortable. What he's saying is you'll still be standing after the storm has hit. It's because doing God's Word leads to enduring in God's Word. Doing God's Word leads to enduring. Now, there's one other caveat I need to mention here. There's a lot of times in Christian churches where you'll get one group of people who focus on the doing, and they will say, here's all the stuff you have to be doing. You have to be people who never drink alcohol. You have to be people who never do this, who never do that, who never do this other thing. Um, When I was growing up, sort of the joke that the teenagers used against that sort of legalistic thinking was that you don't drink or chew or go with girls who do. And uh, it's just the weirdest weirdest poem I've ever heard in my life. And yet it was one of these things that was like communicated to us that these are the things that will make God mad at you. You know, if you, if you break God's rules by somehow eating the wrong food or drinking the wrong liquid, then you're going to, you know, really face hardship. And so there's a group of people who focus on the doing and they often sound like that. But then there's another group of people who focus on the believing. And they will say, no, 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 you don't have to do all the right things. You can't do all the right things. Jesus died on the cross for you. What you need to do is you need to believe in him. If you put your faith in Jesus, then he will cleanse you from all your sins. And then you just live, live in grace. And don't worry so much about the specific rules, the specific do's and don'ts. And, and they just live by freedom and grace. 
Now, of course, anybody who's sane knows that the Bible is teaching us to be in the middle. The Bible is teaching us that we have to believe, but then that belief is supposed to motivate us to do. And doing isn't something that we do to please God because we've never been able to please God with our actions. Doing is something we do to respond to the grace that we have in Jesus. And so when I'm talking about doing today, I'm not talking about you need to do all these particular things so that you can make God happy with you. What I'm saying is that you need to be doing these things because God already loves you and he has given you the recipe for something good. And listen, I tell you the truth, anytime you're making a recipe and if the recipe asks for sugar and you put in salt, you will regret it. If the recipe is asking for flour and you put in powdered sugar, you will regret it. If the recipe asks for something and you put in something different, it's a problem. God is giving us how he wants us to walk because he knows this is the place where real blessing comes. This is the place where real understanding comes. And this is the place where real endurance comes. But of course, that leaves you and me with a question. What do we need to do? How do we need to do it? I mean, the Bible is big. Are you telling me that I have to do every one of the things that the Bible says? There are a couple books that came on the market a couple years ago. One was a book called uh, A Year of Living Biblically, and then another book was called A Year of Biblical Womanhood. And both of these books effectively made fun of the Bible. The guy who wrote the book, A Year of of Living Biblically, what he did is he went into the oldest, most arcane commandments of the Old Testament, and then he, as a 20th century individual, 21st century individual, I can't remember when the book was written, decided he would just mimic them as much as he thought he could. It's not like he looked into how Jewish people actually lived. Instead, he just read the Bible and interpreted it how he wanted to, and then lived according to these things things. And it was a crazy experiment that ended up selling a lot of books, got him a TED Talk, and all kinds of things like that. I'm not doing that. I'm not saying, okay, arbitrarily go through the Bible and just tick off every box. No. But the question remains, what do we do? How do we do it? And if I'm honest, usually when I ask the question or usually when I hear the question, someone is trying to find a loophole. How much of Jesus' words do I have to actually keep? How much of the Bible do I have to actually honor? What are the loopholes that I can get around or get through? And so today, I'm going to start with the big picture. I'm going to give you the passages of Scripture that I think cover everything you need to know in order to do what God is calling you to do, while at the same time being so difficult that you will never be able to look for anything else in the Bible that's harder. It's not like walking around with the tassels of your cloak uncut is going to be any more difficult than what I'm reading to you now. And so we're going to start with the big picture ones that are also, just be honest, the most difficult to do. Here it is, Jesus' own words. He says in Matthew 22, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two 
commands. Now, I've talked about this before, but I want to give you kind of a metaphor to picture. This hopefully will help you. The entirety of our lives should live on a cross. Picture in your mind a cross, a vertical beam and a horizontal beam. The vertical beam symbolizes the relationship you and I are to have with our Creator God. We should always be in a relationship with God where we view Him as above us, where we view Him as up, higher than. His thoughts are higher than my thoughts. His words are higher than my words. His will is higher than my will. I'm going to always view God upward. I am under Him. I am in submission to Him. My relationship to God is one of worship and trust and honor and praise. And my relationship to myself is one of humility and trust and allowing God to do His work in me. It's a vertical relationship. Love the Lord your God with everything that you are. Now, there's some doing that goes along with every love relationship. But the love is primary. The love has to be there first in order for the doing to even matter. But then there's a horizontal relationship. And so picture the horizontal beam of a cross. And that's the relationship. That's the moment when Jesus, hanging on the cross, opens his arms wide to communicate how much he loves us. And there's two aspects of that love. There's the love that he has for his followers. And there's the love he has for those people who aren't yet his followers. There's the love that you and I have for the church, the family in which we live, and there's a love that we have for the world around us that needs to be brought into the family. They are not yet, but we want to draw them in. And so everything about our lives can be summarized by this vertical and horizontal relationship that we have. Love God, love other people. And every one of those things has some doing associated with it. But before the doing happens, There's an identity that we need to embrace. I want to be, and I want you to be, a person identified by love. So that means that the first thing we do, the first thing that we do as we're trying to walk the path of honoring God, following His Word, the first thing that we do is something about our identity. I'm going to do whatever it takes so that people see me as a person of love. See, I could be a person who follows God. And in my mind, I have a vertical relationship with God. God is above me. I'm below God. I'm in submission to God. Whatever he says goes. I could be a person who walks in a vertical kind of relationship, a loving relationship with God for myself. But there's going to be a lot of people around me who may only perceive me as a religious person. You know, if my relationship with God is one of these relationships where it's only I'm just going to do what he says and it's never but I love who he is, the world around me might just see that doing. They might just see me as a religious person and might never identify that I am doing what I'm doing because of love. See, God doesn't say, I want you to obey me as the first and greatest commandment. I mean, that's, that's like the, the genie wish. You know, the first wish you always ask the genie is, I want more wishes. He says, I'll give you three wishes. And you're like, no, I want four, five. I want an infinite number of wishes. And if I can't have more wishes, I'll just wish for another genie. 
you know? And that's the kind of thing that we want to do. And God doesn't say, my first command to you is that you obey all my other commands. No. What God says is my first command to you is just that you love me. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commands. It begins with love. And then God could have said, I've got this whole long list of things I want you to do for the people around you. I want you to do this and that and the other thing. I want you to avoid this kind of thing, avoid these kind of people. Follow the... yeah, he could have done that, but instead, the first, the greatest commandment when it comes to relationships, the horizontal greatest commandment is love your neighbor. Love. The first and most important thing I do is whatever it takes to be identified as a person of love. But I'm going to give you a couple more. Because see, what's fascinating is that Matthew 22 shows up after Matthew 7. It's an amazing thing, right? Matthew 7, Jesus says, build your house on a rock. Build your house on a rock and you will never fall. And Jesus says in Matthew 7 that building your house on the rock is hearing his words and doing them. But he hasn't said the words in Matthew 22 yet. So in Matthew 7, what is he talking about? Well, as a matter of fact, Matthew 7, the thing that he says about the parable of the wise and foolish builders building their house on rocks or sand, comes at the tail end of a sermon that he gave that we call the Sermon on the Mount. It starts in Matthew chapter 5, it goes through Matthew chapter 7, and the thing that we read about building your house on a rock comes on the tail end of that sermon. So Jesus mostly is talking about the words he just finished speaking. So let's look at them. And here's the deal. Uh, the Sermon on the Mount is condensed. It's really dense. It's got a lot of interesting stuff in it. We've talked about it before. In fact, I spent three or four weeks on it last year around this time to try to go through the Sermon on the Mount. Today, I'm going to give you the summary. I'm going to give you the bigger picture, some details, but the summary. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at the three big ideas in the Sermon on the Mount, and I'm going to show you the passages that support them. The first big idea in the Sermon on the Mount is that I need to live a life of humility, purity, and trust, particularly trust in God. I need to live a life of humility, purity, and trust. This is kind of about the vertical relationship. The vertical relationship I have with me and God is based on these sorts of characteristics, humility and purity and trust. Let me show you a couple passages that indicate that. First of all, it says this in Matthew 5, a variety of verses from Matthew 5 says, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Poor in spirit, that is a humbling kind of phrase. Blessed are the meek for they will inherit the earth. That is another humble kind of statement. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. That's a message of purity. I, I hunger for God's righteousness in my life. And blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. An another message of purity. Jesus then would say this later on in Matthew chapter 5. He says, all you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. I'll give you a little bit of context. In that passage, Jesus is saying that there are all kinds of people who swear. And he's not talking about cursing. He's not talking about saying the bad words, you know, the four-letter words. He's talking about the kind of thing where you say, I swear I'm telling you the truth. 
or the kind of thing where you'd say, I swear on the Bible or I swear on this other thing that I'm telling you the truth. In other words, Jesus is saying, what are the words you use to convince other people that, oh no, this time you're telling the truth. And Jesus said, no, 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 no. You should be the kind of people who when you say yes, everybody says he means it. You should be the kind of people who when you say no, everybody knows she means it. You should be the kind of person who your yes and your no carry all the weight. Because as a matter of fact, a person who always does their yeses and never does their noes is a person that you can trust because they're a person of integrity or purity. Or, or then look at this passage here. Jesus says in Matthew 6, the prayer phrase that I know you know, he says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus says our job, our relationship to the heavenly father is to be one of submission, humility, purity, and trust. God's, God, your will should be done. And then to just top it all off in Matthew 6, he says this, so do not worry saying what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear for the pagans run after all these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. Jesus wants us to be people of humility. He wants us to be people of purity and he wants us to be people of trust. Particularly trust in God. That's the first of the detail principles that we get out of the Sermon on the Mount. The second of the detail principles covers the horizontal relationship. The first one was about the vertical relationship, humility, trust, purity before God. The second one is the horizontal relationship. And Jesus says that we need to be people who walk a path of sacrificial service. Walking a path of sacrificial service. Let me show you a couple passages from that as well. It says, you are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people put a light in a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. Now pause there for just a moment. If you stop this passage right there, it can sound like a passage where Jesus is puffing you up. You're the best people on the planet. Why would anyone ever want to hide the best people on the planet? I want to put you up on a hill. I want everybody to see how great you are. I think you people, the light of the world, you are the people who need to be elevated. We should put you people in charge of every Hollywood studio. We should put you people in charge of every government. We should put you people on the top of every pedestal because you people, man, you people, you're the greatest. I think a lot of times when we read Jesus saying, you're the light of the world, we hear Jesus saying, you're the most special people on the planet. And therefore, you deserve so much honor and so much glory and so much... Want, but keep reading. Because what he actually says is in the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Let your light shine so that people don't pay attention to you. Let your light shine so that people glorify your Father in heaven. One of the most fascinating things about being on a stage is that the more visible I am to you, 
the less visible you are to me. Because of these silly lights, if I stand where I'm comfortable, maybe here, maybe here, if I stand where I'm comfortable, Chuck isn't happy with me. Because it's shadow all over and the lights are going elsewhere and all this kind of stuff. But if I stand where I am blinded and I can't see anything else going on in the room, I can't see, if people were here, I wouldn't know it. If I stand in the light, the light shines on me and you see me. In the same way, I don't want to be a light that people look at. In the same way, I don't want to be a light that people notice. I don't want to be a light that people emphasize. I want to be a light that shines for the glory of God. I want my good deeds to be the kind of good deeds where when people see them, they don't go, oh, Jeff is really good. When people see them, they say, God is really good. See, Jesus says, I shouldn't be the kind of person who elevates myself. I should be the kind of person who does whatever good it requires so that other people elevate God. And the only way that can happen is if the good I do somehow diminishes me. Being a light in this world is being sacrificial is being serving. I'm going to elevate someone else so that God gets glory. There's nothing about this light of the world concept that should indicate that I get any recognition at all. One of the fundamental concepts of being a light is that you exist so people can see something else. Let's keep going because there's another passage in the Sermon on the Mount that I want to show you. This one, Jesus says, you've heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other also. I've talked about this one before. And and this is one of those passages that it's so incredibly difficult to do. Jesus, are you serious? If someone takes advantage of me, I'm supposed to let them? Listen. I don't have the authority here to explain to you Jesus' words. All I have is the authority to read you Jesus' words. And to say, he's the one who says, if someone hits you, let them keep doing it. Now, granted, I still think that there are some really appropriate times for me to run away. I don't think I need to stand there and let them to continue doing that. I think there's really appropriate times for me to run away. And the context Jesus is talking about is sort of one of these official contexts where the Roman soldiers could do a symbolic slap that would punish you in some way and then you would just stand there and allow them to do... I could explain it away in a lot of different ways, but the bottom line principle is still the case. I want to live a life of sacrifice, even if sometimes that sacrifice means that I, like Jesus, experience unjust hardship. Keep going, because Jesus makes our sacrifice even more difficult when he says this, for if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. 
But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. See, one of the reasons I can let the guy slap my other cheek is that I've forgotten he slapped the first one. Or at least I've forgiven him for it. Man alive. The idea of forgiveness goes so far beyond anything that we are comfortable with. You know, I I told you that these are passages that are simple and straightforward, but the most difficult things in life. But man, I tell you, if, if you and I could become people who forgive, if we could become people who willingly endure unjust suffering, and if in the midst of forgiving and enduring, we were elevating other people, I guarantee you the world around us would look at us and they'd say, those people are weird. They must have some sort of spiritual strength that I've never seen before. It has to be God. So I need to be a person who's in relationship with God of humility and trust and purity. I need to be a person who's in relationship with other people, walking a path of sacrificial service, But then there's also this thing that I have to be in a right relationship with myself. A right relationship with myself. And the phrase I'm going to use for that is this. I will wisely judge others after I've judged myself. I will wisely judge others after I've judged myself. There is a kind of judgment that sometimes we need to make about the world around us, but it needs to begin with the judgment we make about ourselves. I'm not talking about being hypercritical. I know a lot of us are hypercritical. Man, when I am in form, I can be more critical about myself than any other human being on the planet. I can identify all the things that make me terrible, and then I can think about them over and over and over and over again until I really believe they're true. That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is being able to see ourselves accurately, being able to see ourselves the way God sees us, not through rose-colored glasses that we imagine someone who loves us has, but the accurate glasses of the God who was willing to die for us because he knows our frailty and still loves us. If we could judge ourselves accurately, then we'd begin to be in that place where we could evaluate the world around us. Let's take a look at a verse here that Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, you hypocrite, First, take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Of course, we've done that passage before. Removing the speck from your brother's eye is actually an important thing to do. Sometimes we need to critique, criticize, judge another person, but it needs to come after we have done the work of removing from our own lives the things that would blind us to the truth. But then keep going. Because the very next verse, Jesus says, do not give to dogs what is sacred and do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. In other words, sometimes you have to identify whether or not you are giving the best of yourself to someone who shouldn't be trusted with the best of yourself. That means that sometimes you need to evaluate a person around you. Okay, so... I've given you some details from the Sermon on the Mount. I've given you the big picture from Matthew chapter 22. And I've given you the benefits of what it really means to obey God, to do what He says. 
And I hope that by putting these things together, you and I can walk this year on a firm foundation. But I want to end our time by giving you just one basic fundamental question. That as we think through this life that we are entering into, 2022, as we think through this commitment that we're entering into as a church, this decision to to be a church with each other, as we think through all of that, I want to ask you this question. It just basically says, it's a question you ask yourself, I ask myself, how much of my instability in life comes from a simple lack of practice? It's not easy to forgive. And it usually needs to happen more than once. And so I I practice it. I'm not very good at forgiving, but I'll I'll forgive again. And I'll do it again the next day, and, and I'll work on that forgiveness. It's not easy to love my neighbor as myself, but I'll practice it in such a way that I get identified as a person of love. It's not easy to follow God's will when God's will says things like turn the other cheek or blessed are the poor in spirit or you need to be perfect even as your heavenly Father is perfect when it comes to moral and spiritual purity. Those things are difficult. But I'm going to practice. Because I know that by constant use... I'll be able to distinguish good from evil. I know by constant use, I will be walking in the path of Psalm 1. I know that I will be one of those people who will experience a life on the rock. I know that God has already wired this world up and wired me up in it to walk the recipe He's laid out. And so by repeating by practicing, by walking these things, I'm confident that the kind of blessings God has for me, He'll bring to me. And I'm certain that's going to happen for you too. Maybe not comfort, maybe not ease, but I guarantee you this. If Jesus can be trusted, then walking according to His words can be trusted. If Jesus loves you, then walking according to His words is walking in love. If Jesus plans for you to experience eternity with Him, then walking according to His words is walking the path of eternity. I want us to be the kind of people who lives this way, not because we feel like we're doing it to try to please God, but because God has already pleased us and we want to live in that. Not because this is going to earn us heaven, but because heaven has been freely given to us and we want to walk in it now. And because the world around us desperately needs to see Jesus. And we're the ones on the planet to reveal him to them. I encourage you to walk this way with us this year. To be people who say, God, I am willing to be clay in your hands. I'm willing to be dirt into which you plant your word. I'm willing to let you do your work in my life so the world around me can glorify you. Thanks for listening to this message from Lafayette Community Church. We are all about helping you live the life you were made to live. God made you. God loves you. And his plans for you are perfect. 
So if you are anywhere near Lafayette, Indiana, join us this weekend at one of our worship gatherings. And wherever you are, check us out online at lafayettecommunitychurch.com.